This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and salut Babette! My name is Vivian Langford, and my friend Andy Britt would like to acknowledge country. Beyond Zero Emissions and 3CR acknowledges that it is broadcasts from land stolen from the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the original owners of the land where 3CR is located. Tonight's show will be about managing the business sector as they realise all at once that the game is over for fossil fuels. And I'd just like to reclaim a word for this year, awesome. We all say awesome just for the everyday things, but the bushfires were awesome and the financial crash that we are going to face, according to our guests tonight, will be awesome. I am in awe, really, at what is happening at the moment. And so I hope you listen very carefully to the details of the people speaking to us tonight because we need to be prepared. At the Climate Summit in Melbourne Town Hall, Paul Gilding talked about how the threat of climate change is matched by the threat of a sudden collapse in the business world. The 2050 budgets that they're talking about in the mainstream media are too late. You know, getting the emissions down by 2050, it's too late. Companies like Exxon are seeing their market value go down, but as Christine Milne told me at the summit, they are 20 years ahead of the public and they know what they're going to do. She said the signs from Davos were that the fossil fuel corporations want bailouts from governments on the idea that if they collapse, they'll take all of us with them. On the same panel, Ian Dunlop, whose former association with Shell and the coal industry give us an insider's view, he said uh, the incumbents show no sign of change. He said they are ethically bankrupt and engaged in predatory delay. We cannot have 2050 targets and new gas and new coal assets opening up. They must be challenged to scale back, he said, in two years and then stop. Then we'll talk after that, we'll talk to Heidi Lee. She's from Beyond Zero Emissions. Her solutions focus is for all those businesses that can see the writing on the wall. There are no technical barriers even to green steel and so she's working with experts and networking them to make the transition happen with all its messy humanness. Lastly, we'll talk about the Transition Film Festival and we'll hear Bob Brown, Bruce Shillingsworth and Julian O'Shea. So now we'll go to Paul Gilding who spoke to me today. Um, Paul Gilding is the author of The Great Disruption and a fellow at Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability. Uh, let's check in first, Paul. How are you feeling? Yeah, pretty good, actually. I think um, people are starting to wake up um, to the size of the challenge. That's obviously a big gap between that and acting, but there's certainly a, a huge upsurge in awareness yeah. and uh, engagement in recent times. It is huge. You've been engaged with business leaders for many years, but at the Climate Summit in Melbourne Town Hall, you said that you think your efforts have more or less failed with them. And I'd like to know why have companies with access to the best science, you know, deliberately delayed this long? Well, I think it's not just companies that have failed. I think society has failed. And I think the company's failure 
in many ways represents that. Um, that you know, people have not engaged, governments have not set policy, companies have not acted. Uh, there's just this amazing ability of society as a whole to ignore the impending, you know, uh, impacts and, as we've seen in Australia recently, catastrophic impacts, um, and yet failing to act in advance of that. So I think, the co- you know, companies, a bit like our politicians these days, tend to react to what they see around them rather than leading. Um, and that's obviously in- inadequate and appalling that they do that, but that's what they do. And therefore, the action of companies, I think they will never act until they're forced to by policy or forced to by the uh, public pressure being so great that they're imperiled commercially if they don't. Yeah. Well, in your new breakthrough publication called Climate Contagion 2020-2025, you said, uh, we're just waiting for the storm of financial collapse to hit. And I'd like you to describe how you see that happening. Yeah, look, I think that's back to my point about when companies act, they tend to act in reaction to what's happening around them. And because of the way markets work, they tend to all act together when they do act, but they try to avoid acting as long as possible until they see the world shifting uh, underneath their feet. So what that means, as we see often in financial markets, is that when the market acts, it all acts together and we get a crash. We get a, you know, or we, we get a boom, you know, according to what the issue is. But they tend to act together in very uneven ways. So what that means in a climate change sense, in my paper, Climate Contagion, is that people are going to um, see, I think, a dramatic collapse in the value of fossil fuel companies. But I think the oil, gas and coal sectors are going to suffer very significant drops in value in the coming few years. And that's not just one isolated incident. It's a combination of public pressure, um, pressure internally inside those companies of people who work there, losing faith in the ethics and beliefs of those companies. Um, it's insurance companies charging more for insurance. It's bank charging more for debt. So it is it is contagion in that commercial sense of <clears throat> people acting across the market and that manifesting into the valuation of certain companies. But, you know... We focus a lot on fossil fuels, and we rightly should, but there is also a lot of other financial impacts of climate change. Um, insurance companies, I think, are going to be in trouble uh, post incidents like the Australian bushfires, where it's going to be harder and harder to get insurance, or at least to afford insurance. We're going to see a loss of coastal real estate and infrastructure um, on that's going to be affected by storms. All those impacts come together on tourism, uh, they come together on you know, the inability to grow food at the right price um, for, the, for the global market. All these, mar- all these impacts translate economically and they're going to have very big impacts on the Australian economy, I think. Mm. Well, I spoke to Christine Milne at the summit and she said she was horrified by what she's heard from Davos, you know, the sort of results of the conference in Davos. Was the fossil fuel industry has obviously worked out that at some point the climate emergency will drive political action and people will want to shut down the fossil fuel industry. So they're trying to get ahead of it by saying the fossil fuel industry is too big to fail, just like the banks did after creating the global financial crisis. Then they had to be bailed out by government. Now we're going to get the same thing with the fossil fuel industry saying if you don't give us access to our reserves, our share price collapses, our company collapses 
And because Australia is so dependent on fossil fuels in its economy, you'll see an economy collapse. So to avoid that, you need to buy us out. And so the Reserve Bank of Australia should be instructed to buy out the fossil fuel industry. That is what they are working up to, and that is what we have to expose right now and work towards making sure that we don't pay out the people who have put us into this crisis. Bail them out. Well, that's, that is what the movement has to face, that unless we get organised now and start shutting them down in a systematic way, then they will, it will get to the point where they all have to be shut down together and you will have economic collapse. So the first thing to do is remove the subsidies. They say let the market decide. Well, remove the subsidies and they will not... I mean, they would not be surviving now without the subsidies. So let's just start removing the subsidies. Let's just start the stop making public money available for infrastructure, for railways and ports and everything else uh, to support these industries and stop granting new exploration licences and withdraw some of the ones that are out there. I mean, it's, there are things we can be doing now that gradually uh, turn up the screws and force them to recognise that they're stranded. Do you think, what she told me, the game plan for fossil fuels incumbents, those incumbents, um, is really to protect the illusion that they can go on drilling and mining and that in the end they'll be too big to fail. I think it's insane, but mightn't we just prefer to pay them to stop than to endure more emissions? I wonder if a bailing out, bailing them out is an option. Yeah, look, I th- they will certainly seek that. Um, there is a very strong history in capitalism of uh, the market seeking to profit you know, what's called privatise the profits, socialise the losses. In other words, when there's a big loss to be had, get the taxpayer to pay for it. When there's much to be gained, get the get the companies to take the profit. And that's, you know, I guess that's a human tendency. If you can get away with it, we must not let them get away with it. And that's the issue to me, is that we must be ready for uh, that change coming. They will seek to be bailed out. There's no question that when the companies are facing collapse, they will seek taxpayer subsidies to avoid that um, avoid that failure. The big difference, though, from the banks historically, when we had to bail the banks out at different times to prevent financial crises, is that bailing out fossil fuel companies won't help the economy. It'll actually damage the economy. There is obviously, you know, for those companies, carbon risk, climate risk has been coming for decades. Uh, they were well warned. They could see uh, decades ahead of time that it was coming at a certain point. They chose to, to avoid... Changing, they chose to, to actively campaign against policy. So the idea that they would now be bailed out from that, um, I think, would be outrageous. Um, and it would also be against basic market principles. Uh, that, you know, if, if you've failed to adequately manage your risk, then you should suffer the consequences of it. What we should be bailing out, you know, what we should be using taxpayer money for, um, is to help the communities that are affected. Uh, to help the workers that will need to be uh, resettled into different areas and/or uh, developing new businesses in those areas. There's going to be a massive economic loss. There's going to be a massive economic failure in many concentrated areas in Australia and elsewhere. And we need to use all the money we have available to both build up new industries um, and to uh, help those people transition through the social consequences of that of that process. Right. Well, that's something to build on. Look, one of your people you quite often quote is Winston Churchill, and he said in 1936 
the era of procrastination, of half measures, of soothing and baffling expedients and delays is coming to a close. In its place, we are entering a period of consequences. And he was in an era where they were appeasing Hitler. And at the summit, you got a huge round of applause when you said, look, to Zali Stegel, she's been proposing a bill for something towards 2050. And you said when Hitler was coming, we didn't say, oh, we can't continue sensibly until, you know, 2050. I want to know how can we disrupt this parliament, this type of government, without losing our democracy? Look, I think the the answer is actually before us already in the activism that we've seen um, huge upswing in uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, in many countries, the school strikes and so on. That's the kind of action we need to really put enormous pressure on society. Now we have we have for decades done the very important work in developing policy ideas and analyses and beyond zero emissions and all the organisations that do that work on defining what that future could look like. But in the end, the status quo is very powerful, uh, needs to be disrupted and forced to change. And while I can see that change happening in the market in many ways, it is going to require um, civil disobedience. It's going to require large-scale protests by people, um, and it's going to require that pressure to be increased and increased until the system has no choice but to respond. And there is, you know, very strong history in, in the emancipation of women, in the civil rights movement in the US, in, in the Arab Spring, in many, many examples where governments don't change, even when the logic is overpowering, um, until they are forced to by the people rising up in some form and demanding that change very, very firmly. And it's, it's the inherent nature of systems through this change. And so to, to give them a system shock, I think, is very important. And, that, and that, um, that, that will come through the financial markets and through public pressure of various types. But I do think civil disobedience historically has, has been shown to be necessary yeah. um, at these times. Well, you said that um, climate contagion is not just about fossil fuels. And one of the examples in your book I thought was very interesting, the Swedish Central Bank recently just lost confidence in Queensland, it seems to me, and they sold all their Queensland government bonds. And I'd like to know how, just explain how this is a case study for contagion. Yeah, look, it's a very good example because because it, it's actually often hard to find a way to synthesise all the various impacts of a system-wide issue like climate change across an economy. So Queensland provides a perfect case study of what's called concentrated risk. Um, Queensland is, is, is going to face the threat of the collapse of the coal industry, which will have massive impacts on their state uh, government income as well as on their society across the board. They're also facing the risk of the collapse of the Great Barrier Reef and the decline of tourism um, as a result of that. They're facing the very significant threat of drought and the impacts on agriculture, um, whereby they have many places that are really severely affected already and have been at various times and will be in the future by agriculture and by cyclones and floods. They're facing coastal real estate risk um, because both from the cyclones and sea level surge, um, they're going to have a lot of beachfront development that's going to be heavily impacted value-wise and very hard to insure. Um, they're going to find all those things coming together um, to put a significant uh, impediment to their economic success. And that's what the Swedish Central Bank said, was that the, the climate risk across the board in Queensland is unusually concentrated, and therefore that posed the risk of the government bonds of Queensland. 
and therefore they sold all their government bonds in, in Queensland as, as a result um, because they weren't prepared to take the risk of the devaluation of that debt by virtue of that concentration of risk. Do you think the media cover these stories in the way that you're talking to me now? Because I, I haven't heard that before, the way you're talking now. No, they don't. And, and it, it's because people, and it's not just the media, most people don't see the system as a whole. <clears throat> they tend to think of the isolated example of the bushfire or the flood or the real estate prices or you know, the drought and so on. Um, it's only when you aggregate those things together that you see the obvious connections between those things. And, and ironically, it's often the financial markets that do that um, because they actually look at those risks in total. Um, not always, but, but certainly for state government bonds, like in the case of Queensland, we do see that. And it's, it's a lack of ability for people to see that system in that way that I think often leads them to, to discount and to not pay adequate attention to system risk like climate change. And that's why I think we are going to see a significant change in that in the coming years. Mm. Well, I like the way you refer to historic examples. It's not, it is unprecedented, the scale of what's happening, but you know, there are lots of you know, similarities between previous things. And I think Extinction Rebellion and the youth that you're talking about, they're referring to those past examples to take away the social licence for this coal, oil and gas industry, despite the huge political power they have. And when they collapse, you know, we all feel that we'll go with them. But I'd like to take us back to World War Two. another leader, one of my favourites, which is Franklin Roosevelt. And there's a sort of mythic scene in any description of what happened when they geared up for the Second World War and he calls in the captains of industry and demands a change of course. I've read many accounts of that, you know, but it was sort of like you'll turn your car factory into a tank factory, that sort of very Mm -hmm. simple thing. But many are now calling for a Green New Deal and I wonder, could a policy like that, a top-down policy, turn us around? Absolutely make a huge contribution to the process. I think it's inevitable that we see economic uh, impacts at large scale globally as a result of climate change. And the obvious solution to it is, you know, along the lines of, of, of the US and World War II, along the lines of the Green New Deal examples, along the lines of, of interventions in the global financial crisis, when government decides to act, they can boost an economy. Uh, and the obvious way to act in this particular case is to boost the economy by investing heavily and encouraging investment in the green jobs of the future. Um, For a number of reasons. A, we need to get them happening for our own benefit. But secondly, they're very job-intensive industries. They're very new industries, which is always good for an economy to have innovation and change. Um, And they're very distributed. You know, if you're going to retrofit houses for energy efficiency or put solar panels on houses, etc., those jobs go all around the country where people live. And so it's quite important to recognise that that's a good way of boosting an economy regardless, but it's also particularly good for job creation and for uh, spreading the wealth around the economy, which also therefore addresses inequality, which is another one of our our pressing issues today. Mm. Look, I know you have to go. I've just got one more question, which a lot of people in meetings say, what can I do down at the individual level? And I think outside of government, which at the moment is very frustrating, I wonder what sort of consumer demands are becoming contagious. Like you mentioned in your paper, veggie burgers or electric vehicles or professional groups like doctors, they're furious about the air pollution, the heat wave deaths. And, you know, people, there's pressure from individual groups. 
What if the flight freemium movement, for example, caught on with a vengeance? These kind of pressures. What do you see? Look, I, I think there's, it's great that people are focusing on the um, uh, the green consumer options, different food types, eating less beef, eating less dairy, and so on. I think they're excellent examples of very simple things people can do, um, and that is generating a lot of economic activity in those new industries and excitement in the market about that opportunity. That's great. Um, it's, however, we should recognise that it's it's not primarily personal behaviour that will drive rapid transformational change. It's primarily policy and threats to those companies' future. So the social licence of those companies is incredibly important and people refusing to work for, you know, supply to uh, be associated with the companies that are causing the damage, uh, in particular the fossil fuel companies, I think is really a crucial part of the equation going forward. And good old-fashioned lobbying. You know, we, we, we in this modern world of, of clicktivism and, and online activism, all of which is great and helpful and, and, and mobilises people, ringing up your local member, you know, writing letters, personal letters to, to individual politicians at this time after the bushfires is enormously powerful. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be, I think, become more and more important um, on top of the personal behaviour change. Um, but the system changes as a system and therefore we need to do all those things in parallel to have an impact. But I think right now, um, putting pressure on individual politicians of all persuasions um, through personal contact is actually incredibly important missing link that we've kind of lost that sort of activism and we need to bring it back. Do you think the climate summit, the emergency summit, will have that sort of ripple effect? Was... I think every, everything that goes towards increasing the sense of urgency is, I think, very useful. So, yes, I think it does make a contribution in that regard because it really emphasises that issue of, of um, the pace of change that we now need and how fast people need to move. Thank you, Paul. We've been talking to Paul Gilding, author of The Great Disruption and, um, you know, big thinker in this field. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. We're back at the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. That was a long interview, listeners, but I hope when you listen to the podcast you can really see all the points Paul was making. Um, Our next guest is Heidi Lee. She's uh, the Beyond Zero Emissions Business and Industry Manager. Welcome, Heidi. How are you feeling today? Hi, Vivian. I'm feeling good. It's great to be here. Oh, that's good. Uh, how are you feeling after the weekend of such a turbulence at the summit? So many speakers and so much happening. I think I'll be listening to the podcast and processing that for a few weeks to come, actually. Yes. Well, at the summit, we heard how the fossil fuel incumbents won't, won't go quietly and many businesses must feel locked into coal, oil and gas and you spoke about working with manufacturers to have zero carbon factories, for example. Could you give us some examples? Because your session was very well received and I think people really like practical examples to hear well, what's happening. Right. Well, I think this builds off BZE's original work being a research base, right, being a think tank. So then we ended up with all of this knowledge about how we could electrify industry and use it or electrified industry to repower the manufacturing sector on renewables. The manufacturing sector is incredibly interesting to us because so many of the skills that you develop when you're working in um, fossil fuel dependent industries are quite transferable to the manufacturing sector. So it is in itself both an, an an issue and a huge opportunity for businesses to actually take that step towards 
renewable energy and become part of the solution to the the fossil fuel industry and the vested interests that are using the jobs that that sector provides as a rationale to keep something going that's really not good for our communities or our economy. I don't think it's common knowledge, though, that you could really have zero carbon steel, for example. Lots of people ask that question at meetings I go to. So steel is a really great one there. I am working closely with a steel company at the moment who have looked at the risk of um, staying committed to fossil fuels. Like They use a lot of gas at the moment to fire furnaces to get high temperatures so that they can melt down steel and, and you know the raw ingredients that go into that. But high temperature um, steel and high temperature heavy industry is a perfect um, application for things like electric arc furnaces, induction heat furnaces, which, you know, they can reach a thousand degrees or more, which is the kind of temperature that you need to be able to... um, you know, do the processes, the metallurgy um, that's required to make really high quality steel. So the steel industry, and you see it in overseas um, in our session at the um, the summit on the weekend, Paul gave some examples where he's been to see um, places in Sweden and Germany where the steel factories there are committed to 100% renewables and committed to getting off fossil fuels um, in the next 30, 20 years. Like, these businesses recognise the threat and the opportunity that they've got in heavy industry to make the switch. Mm. Well, there's a push towards gas at the moment. I notice in New South Wales, you know, the Prime Minister and our Premier in New South Wales signing an agreement that more gas would be brought into play, and yet the ACT has just started to phase gas out in all new buildings. And I want to know, what do you say when you hear that gas is a necessary transition fuel? Well... There's certainly no reason for it. I say factories don't need fossil fuels and I say that our research and the evidence base around the world proves that. Heat pumps, electrified heat pumps, replace gas boilers. Uh, Microwaves can replace gas kilns. Um, And, you know, my favourite's the electric arc furnace because it's very, very exciting to see one of those (laughs) up up close. (laughs) I I got to go and, and see one in action and I... I talked about it nonstop for um, a very long time. Just stop you there. Could you just tell us, because I haven't a clue what an arc furnace is. I'm thinking of a rainbow in the sky or something, but what does an arc (laughs) furnace look like? (laughs) Um, Well, it kind of looks like the belly of a dragon. Like, I get excited about these things, and you know me. I'm a a designer by background, so I, I get quite, like, inspired by this. It looks like... Um, a, a an arc coming down from the top of a very large pot of uh, molten and melting steel. So I got to stand about sort of 15 metres from one in action and it, it roars as loud as you mm. can imagine and the arc is coming down from the roof of this sort of three-storey high shed space and the light is so bright that you're wearing, you know, you're obviously wearing a lot of protective gear, the heat is intense, the the light is intense, the sound is intense and it's the sound of renewables powering heavy industry. Like there's, there was a 30 megawatt um, situation that I was looking at, which is actually kind of small and very, very impressive, but 30 megawatts, that's something that we can do with renewables and certainly doing it 
um, now without massive changes. More changes will be needed. More changes will be needed to the grid to be able to support like a rollout of renewable energy technology, especially across heavy industry. But the technology exists. I've seen it in action. We can electrify even heavy industry and it can be a really important part of you know, having a diversity of jobs in a new economy, in our new future past fossil fuels. And those people that you're dealing with, are they excited by it as well? Because you mentioned how you're sort of liaising. You're the one who's like, you're pollinating all these different ideas to people. And I love that because that's what BZE's work is all about. We've got so many reports, there's a great list of them um, that people can look on our website you know, like uh, rethinking cement, exporting exporting superpower, electrifying industry, zero carbon factories. Like, are, are the people you're meeting, though, going to read those reports and start putting them into action? Well, I'd love to think they'd sit down and read the report. But honestly, these are businesses that are pretty under the pump these days. Like, they are running very tight margins and they don't have a lot of time. So the way that I'm approaching this at the moment, and it's not just me working on it, there's a small and growing team, and the way that we're doing it is to really work with the consultants who are already engaged with factories. So they might be process engineers or electrical engineers. Electrical engineers love hearing about opportunities to expand the amount of electric technology in a factory. and. I work with them to help them um, maybe go through their client list and look for opportunities to um, find those factories that are just about to make an investment, make a big investment in something, right? So they might have really outdated equipment that they know needs to be updated and they're they're just figuring out how. and, And so often the business case for that really only would let them replace like with like. It would only let them buy another bit of gas kit. So what I'm able to do through not just working with the process engineers, but also through working with um, funding organisations and grant makers, I'm able to help just join the dots. And you really need people, if we want to see a wholesale transition and we want to see it happen rapidly, we really need people who are able to spend the time and have the the actual mandate to go out and join the dots between the grant makers and the factories about to make decisions and the process engineers who know how to make that happen and the mm-hmm. you know the funding organizations and the long-term business plans yeah. it's a really complex network and it, it it does need a little bit of support right now so that people can lift their eyes off the page of just keeping things going to make those bigger plans and to actually realize some of the opportunities and capitalize quite simply on some of the opportunities that there are for factories and industries to go all electric and to power with renewables. Yeah, and it sounds like it's a new type of um, professional needed too with multidisciplinary um, skills like you've got now. But the main thing I, I really like with BZE, over the years we've you know, um, influenced various regions. And the first one was Port Augusta, and we followed that story on this radio program for years. And I've recently been to Port Augusta, and now it's quite a hub of renewables all around there. And then Collie in Western Australia, we covered that last year, and the unions were very keen to, to ensure that the transition away from coal, which is going to happen at Collie, 
will fit the skills of the workers there. And you have been involved and Beyond Zero has been involved in just sort of making these things, like coordinating, I think, coordinating the idea set so that suddenly it becomes imaginable and doable and you put the facts behind it. So how does Beyond Zero's research make this reimagining really possible in, in regional places or places where there's a like a pressure point? So I think you're describing like the, how the two different programs kind of fit together. And we have, we work with communities, we work with business and industry, and we do the research program. So I would say with the business and industry stuff, I, de- I describe it happening in three parts. Like, first of all, you, you're closing the knowledge gap. And that is what I've described before. It's actually sharing the report or pieces of the report and the, the research that are quite relevant to a particular situation and making sure those people see that. And, and just get that prompt, like, remember, remember it's possible. They may already know this, but just getting that information at the right time. Secondly, it's actually mobilising that community of experts, that networking thing that you're describing before, which is, I, I do love doing that. And thirdly, it's partnering with those organisations and creating the partnerships with others as well, not just the company that's going to do it, to get those lighthouse projects on the ground. So that. When you look at our repower research, and that was last year, was the Northern Territory 10 gigawatt vision and Collie at the Crossroads in, in southwest West Australia, those two separate places, we basically took the ideas from our previous research, what we know about the kind of future we're trying to create, and looked at that under kind of a closer and closer lens. Like if you look at the Northern Territory, and the, the 8,000 jobs that are described in the NT 10 gigawatt vision report, they are around industry. They're around the renewable energy industry, certainly the hydrogen industry. They're around energy exports. They're around um, downstream processing of minerals. They are all industrial jobs, and that's what we look at. Like, are those 8,000 jobs are sitting in such stark comparison to the shale gas jobs, which are something like 500? When you look at Collie, I mean, that was a much more small scale, like a much closer engagement with the four different unions who were quite active and, and willing to to share with us what they wanted to see for their workers. And that is, again, it's in renewable um, energy manufacturing, it's in um, recycling solar panels, it's in green building materials. These are all fantastic manufacturing and industrial jobs. It's not about making our, you know, I think Lachlan, who's the lead author of Collie, says something like um, boilermakers don't want to make lattes. And I do like that, that sort of <laughs> turn of phrase because it brings to life that what, is it, what does a just transition mean? Well, it means having a job that actually builds on your skills that you've been developing and honing for decades, not taking you out of that completely and... And this is an opportunity where we really need probably more manufacturers and skilled industrial workers than what we already have to be able to deliver the resources we need for a full renewable energy transition. Oh, yes, so I wish you'd say that again. Everyone we've got. Could you just say <laughs> that again? Just say that again, because I don't think that is very common knowledge at all. I believe we're going to need more manufacturers and more skilled industrial workers um, in working in the space we need an expansion of that sector to be able to deliver the renewable energy transition mm. 
Well, that's look, what we need, and that's what Australia can do. Yeah, well, that's very good. That's why people clapped you in that audience. Look, Simon Combs Court said there was a war for talent on as well, and the coal, oil and gas companies were finding it very hard to get young people to agree with what the company is producing. You know, do you meet people like that? And if you do, tell the listeners how it feels to be challenging the dreadful future that we are now facing. I mean, I wouldn't like to be a very qualified engineer and only have a job in you know, in drilling for more oil in the Great Australian Bight, if that was the best job available to me. And you're a shining example of that, you know, speaking on that panel among those very eminent men and really inspiring the audience. So just tell us about the kind of people you meet, younger people with these skills or with skills yet to be discovered who... And what they could well, do. I, I think you're you're inviting me to make a recruitment drive here because yes. <laughs> I, every now and then I and I am just absolutely floored by the talent that I see registered on our volunteer database. We are an outlet for a lot of frustrated engineers, early career and mid career and late career engineers, and like the smartest people that I can ever imagine talking to are. Offering, you know, a day a week, two days a week, an hour a fortnight, a few hours a month, mm. you know, they're finding a way to make sure that the skills and their their, their personal assets, you know, like their their their, their work, their labour is going into creating a better world, and we see that again and again on our volunteer database and. My core job now and for the next two weeks is really um, making sure that I recruit a really the right people to get um, a, a real resurgence and a new energy into our business and industry advocacy program. And I am doing that for the next two weeks. So if you are thinking about joining BZE and volunteering some time, I'm very interested to hear from really fantastic engineers in science and math and uh, as well that help to make this information more accessible and more widely shared. Okay, fantastic. Well, there you've made your pitch to the listeners if they want to contact you. Um, what's the um, best uh, way to contact Beyond Zero Emissions? Right now, the best way is through the website. Um, we, I'm quite swamped, um, with the, especially after the summit. I yeah. have a huge list of people to get back to. I would love for people to sign up to volunteer through the volunteer um, portal. That makes it so much easier from our end to be able to match people with the programs that we're going to be launching this year because business and industry is not the only one. Okay, thank you very much, Heidi. We've been listening to Heidi Lee, who's one of these vibrant, you know, new people who just doesn't lie down and die because we've got climate change. She's all keen about the future. So thank you very much for speaking to us today. Um, now we're going to move quickly on to another young person who's also in engineer, in engineer, I think. We're going to hear about the solar tuk-tuk. Joshua O'Shea is, uh, no, not Joshua, Julian O'Shea is a, an engineer whose film will be on at the Nova on Thursday to open the Transitions Film Festival. And I've chosen this um, film to talk to him because he's just been travelling in Asia with this solar tuk-tuk car and I'd like to hear all about it. Welcome uh, Julian. Great to chat. <laughs> Tell us about the trip across Asia. So the project involved designing and building a solar powered tuk-tuk. So what this was is one of those three-wheeled vehicles that you see in Thailand and we fit it out with solar panels and a Tesla battery 
um, and drove it across Australia originally, and then have just finished journeys across two countries, where the tuk-tuk and rickshaw is home, India and Thailand. And what, what reactions did you get from people? Absolutely amazing. Um, it's a crazy vehicle, and that was by design. We wanted to kind of show um, people that we met with, that we connected with, that electric vehicles, sustainable vehicles, don't have to be expensive. A lot of time people think of, you know, $100,000 Teslas, whereas we picked this quirky, crazy, weird, strange little vehicle um, to show. But, yeah, you can be sustainable in an affordable and fun way. And a lot of those countries that would be, I mean, I see those tuk-tuk taxis have a whole family of about six people in them. Would that be really an actually a a good thing? Did people want to have those tuk-tuks in their country? Absolutely. So where I think it's really interesting is that they are pretty great for urban transport. I think that if you look in the cities of Melbourne and Sydney, you see all of these cars that, you know, a two-ton vehicle moving one person at a time. So vehicles that are designed for, um, you know, small urban spaces is a really great idea. Um, one of the issues, though, is that tuk-tuks and, and motorbikes in cities have a lot of emissions. Um, have a lot of kind of exhaust emissions. They can really decrease air pollution. So the idea of building one that has um, entirely clean, entirely green, no emissions at all, is a really great solution. Well, how affordable is it? So ours was done as an education and showcase vehicle, but we deliberately picked what is probably the cheapest kind of vehicle outside a motorbike that you can get. Um, so, yeah, we, we think it's absolutely viable. Ours was done as a bit of an ad hoc project. So um, in an electric vehicle, the, the cost is the significant cost is in the battery. Um, we ended up getting our battery secondhand from a from a Tesla that had had a crash in its previous life, um, and we kind of got it secondhand. And you got the tuk tuk for ten thousand dollars and the battery for five thousand dollars. So your thing cost fifteen thousand. Is that right? With a bit of work at yeah. RMIT. Probably a bit bit more than that, probably closer to, to 20, um, yeah. uh, with extra bits like solar charge controllers and solar panels and the like. Mm. Um, but, yeah, absolutely um, less than a, than a new car would cost. Okay. Well, tell us how it works. I saw a picture of it. It looks bigger than the tuk-tuks I've seen in Asia, but, it, like, longer. Like, there seems to be space for more people in it. But you've got panels on the roof and sort of panels like wings coming off it. And does that is that the total energy source for the car? So, yeah, the, the version we got was actually a tuk-tuk limo, so it's six, six people in the back plus the oh, driver. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, for, for our model, we, we were trying to make it a showcase vehicle. So what we ended up doing is putting panels both on the sides and the back that could then pop up when it was when it was parked. Um, and like, like a lot of um, electric vehicles, it depends how you drive it. So, you know, for, for my use, if I was going to be driving it to, to my work and back, because I live very central, I could absolutely power it just from the sun. But from our journey across Australia, we were, we were pushing 250, 300 kilometres per day. So really only a fraction of that was directly from the sun. Um, it really was using the solar panels as a range extender. Right. So, so you never had to plug in somewhere along the way? Oh, no, we, we, we plugged in fairly significantly. So what we would do along the journey is meet with people that were um, and organisations that had um, renewable energy mm. and um, plugged in plugged in there. Because I think the solution, if, if we really want to move to electric vehicles, is if the grid moves, you know, ideally entirely renewable, then vehicles that need to have the solar panels on top. Basically, every vehicle becomes a solar car if the grid is powered by the sun and mm. wind. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, because it did look a bit, um, I don't know, heavy with all of those panels on it. But um, you maybe want something more streamlined. But I, I'm just wondering, is it commercial, commercially possible to have a little tuk-tuk like that in in countries where the it, tuk-tuk is a vehicle, you know? It is. <laughs> and I was in Thailand last month, and it is fantastic to see that um, there is a bit of a shift towards electric tuk-tuks. Um, look, these vehicles were designed to be low cost, so a lot of them kind of came out from being a hybrid of either a motorbike plus a chariot, and they became their own thing. So this trend is happening, that there have been announced um, electric rickshaws in India um, and in Thailand. So absolutely, absolutely. Look, I think that, as I said, um, the, the, the best place to collect the energy could be from, um, you know, from your shed or your garage. But, um, yeah, this is becoming far more available and really viable. Well, we're near to the end of the show and I'd like to, we haven't talked about your film yet. Um, You're launching, you're part of the launching of the Transition Film Festival. What are you going to tell the film festival audience? So the launch is on Thursday. It's an amazing um, festival that kind of showcases solutions to a lot of global challenges. And um, the short documentary that covers the Solar Took expedition really shows our journey from Melbourne to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, uh, entirely electric and powered by the sun. And I think it kind of is meant to show that a lot of this stuff around um, sustainability can be done in a quirky and fun way. Well, it sounds like you had fun. I sure did. <laughs> well, we just spoke before to Heidi Lee from Beyond Zero, and she was talking about recruiting engineers, you know, and she said she just sounded so exciting about excited about all the possibilities of connecting the dots between all the different skill sets you need to put bigger projects on. Uh, on. And I'd like to know, what do you think is the role for young engineers or young people in these kind of technical fields listening in? Apparently there's lots to do. There absolutely is, and there's a few things that they can do, either in the organisations, because to be honest, most of them are working for larger firms, is driving change internally, and that's having a real impact. And the second thing I'd recommend that people do is get involved with great organisations like Beyond Zero Emissions, or even better, or alongside that, create their own initiatives and projects. There's a lot of skills, there's a lot of talent, but um, there's absolutely space to bring new ideas to life. What what spaces do you see? What like it's very urgent. We've just had a climate summit, emergency summit, and really, oh, you know, people are so worried about how it's going because of the political blockage and the economic system, and you know, we're blocked. We feel blocked. A lot of people do, and I wonder what's your feeling about the climate emergency, and what, what could we be doing? You know, look, there's no doubt there's urgency in the size of the issue. I would just encourage people, though, not to get discouraged by it all or to think that it just takes politicians to lead and make change. Now, of course it does, but alongside that, it is a good time for or, you know, plenty of scope and need for innovation, for local action, to kind of show what can be done. Because, look, there are some, um, you know, positive signs. The cost of things like renewable energies is just getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. Um, Technologies for things like solar panels and batteries are improving. So there is scope to show what can be done and really try to win support one person at a time. Okay, thank you very much, Julian. So I hope, listeners, you'll go to the Transition Film Festival and if you do on Thursday, you'll see Solar Tuk Tuk. And now we're just going to talk about two other films that are in this uh, festival. Um, I'd like to introduce, there's a film called Convoy um, with 
Bob Brown in it, and it's about that convoy he took up to Queensland to before the last election, um, trying to win over people to stop the Adani mine. And um, this is not an interview with Bob Brown. It's a speech he made in Canberra just two weeks ago about stopping things, stop Adani, stop the logging, stop the oil drilling in the Great Australian Pipe. So Bob Brown. 3CR. If you see a coal truck, sit in front of it. If you see a chainsaw going into the Tarkine wilderness as it was this morning, five people arrested, go to the Tarkine and stand in front of that chainsaw even if they threaten you with four years in jail. I'm going, will you come with me? And if you see the gas frackers, lock the gate and then sit in front of it. They need to be stopped. They need to be stopped by us. With peace, as Sue said, because that is the powerful option that we have in our society against their guns, their tanks, their chainsaws. And if we see an oil well Equinor, who won't drill for oil in Norway, in their special places, coming into the Great Australian Bight, it is our job to get in their way and stop that happening. And what about the traditional owners that call for the heart for our rivers? This ageless relationship with our forests, don't cut the trees, the song from Johnny Went. This relationship with our fellow creatures and respect, that is ours to follow, to take back, to honour and to bring power to. So when it comes to Adani and their plan to go ahead and export that oil, that coal, it is our job to go there and get in their way, to stop them with ourselves. That costs money. That costs time, but this for the planet. We are talking about the future of the planet here. We are talking about what H.G. Thoreau wrote in 1840, that when the law is wrong, civil disobedience is right. And whenever has the law been wronger than in the destruction of this planet on the altar of greed and money? So, ladies and gentlemen, let's celebrate the planet. It is beautiful to hear the songs. It is our right to dance. It is our right to picnic. It is our right to just enjoy the companionship of wonderful people, of wonderful creatures on this planet. We must have that celebration as we go into defence of this planet, get in their way, stop them, throw them out until we get back in this rational human intelligence which tells us we must live with this planet instead of off it. So, brave hearts, let's go for planet Earth here in Australia. Let's go. Let's stop the fossil fuel and save the forest. Let's go, ladies and gentlemen. Well, brave hearts, now we have another person to speak to in an equally sort of powerful way, Bruce Shillingsworth. We've heard him before. His film, When the Rivers Run Dry, will also be at the um, Nova Theatre on 
September, no, 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 February the 22nd, Saturday, and uh, he's going to talk to you now. This is He's very upset about the river, darling, the Barker River, absolutely empty of water and all those towns along out in the west New South Wales just absolutely dry, having to truck in water. It's a crying shame. And here's Bruce. But this government is now destroying our lives, our communities, and are not listening for the First Nations people. We are now going to send the voice. We're going to be the voice for those that have been voiceless for so many years. I will stand in the gap. You will stand in the gap. You will stand up for our Mother Earth that sustains us for thousands of years. Brothers and sisters, my people are out there, like I said, are drinking water that's unacceptable. We need filters on those taps for our communities. We need water tanks to put on every household in those communities. We need the water back into our rivers. Put the water back in the rivers. The dams are controlled by who? Who's controlling our waters? The corrupt government. Overseas companies, the cotton farmers, the big irrigators that have pumped our waters, rivers dry. No more. We will say no more. We're now going to stop it. We have the answers. We're going to put pressure on this government. Now they need to listen to us. So let's keep up the fight. We've got to keep fighting. I will keep fighting for my First Nations people. Our First Nation people don't want to leave their lands that they have lived for thousands of years. I believe that this government wants to close down those communities. 90 communities that this government wants to shut down. But it's not going to happen in my time. It's not going to happen in your time. Because we are here and we're going to do something about it. So power to the people. We will unite now. It is our time. It is time. Join number three. I am not in love. But I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Our guests tonight were Paul Gilding, Christine Milne, Heidi Lee and Julian O'Shea. We also heard from Bob Brown because I wanted to advertise the film Convoy and Bruce Shillingsworth because I wanted to advertise the film When the Rivers Run Dry. The Transitions Film Festival is starting on Thursday at the Nova Cinema. The Solar Tuk Tuk will be on that night, as well as a new film called The Great Green Wall, about uh, revegetation in Africa. 
The Bob Brown film Convoy is on Friday, as well as another one called Anote's Ark, about Anote Tong. Uh, you might li- remember, listeners, we interviewed him. He's the ex-president of Kiribati. He had a very progressive policy you know, for us to stop exporting coal and gas in Australia because otherwise they are sinking. Uh, when the Rivers Run Dry with Bruce Shillingsworth will be on Saturday and the panel discussion after that will be a real education for those of us who have not seen the Darling River without any water. I've only seen pictures of it, you know, these great big banks going up about five metres on either side, empty river. Next Monday we will interview more of the actors and directors and a beautiful singer who's launching her song, um, Your House is on Fire. She's going to launch it on this program. So I'd like to ask you, please, listeners, to subscribe to 3CR. You can subscribe as yourself for $30 or $75. And you could try to get an organization you know to subscribe. How about your workplace? How about your church group? How about your union? Ask them to subscribe as as an organization. It's only $150, which you could pass around the hat. And that would help us stay on air. It's very important to subscribe to 3CR every year. Just make a subscription like you would to a newspaper. If you can get down to South Bank tomorrow, this is an event that you might like to go to, please come to a session that's close to my heart. It's about stopping flying. You know how I travel around by train and I, I, I brag about it because I think, you know, you, if you can go on land, you should go on land. But this is all about if it's an emergency, if it's a real climate emergency, it's important to take action as if it is an emergency. And one of those things is to stop excess flying. It's part of the Sustainable Living Festival and it's on at 7pm Tuesday the 18th of February tomorrow at 207 City Road, South Bank. That's called at the Assembly Hall. But you can look up Sustainable Living Festival, um, no flight, no stop flying. Come up to say hello to me. If you see me with my microphone, I'd love to meet some of the listeners. So... Thanks. Andy's giving me the wind-up. We've had a very nice show tonight. I hope you've got a lot out of it. Good night, dear brave hearts, and good luck. So we're going to go out with a band from Perth called Shock Octopus, and this is No Easy Way Out. You can download it on their Bandcamp page, and all the proceeds are going to Extinction Rebellion. Oh,